Welcome to the podcast of Faith Lutheran Church in Oregon, Wisconsin. This is Pastor Hendricks. What you're about to hear is a lecture that was given as part of a conference here at Faith in October of 2022 called Our Great Heritage, sponsored by Return to Wittenberg. The conference was celebrating Luther's translation of the New Testament into German uh, in 1522. Uh, and so the conference focused on our heritage, our great heritage, uh, since that time. So lectures were given on Our Heritage of Christian Liberty by Dr. Adam Kuntz, Our Heritage of Worship by Cantor Daniel Baker, Glorious Now We Press Toward Glory, uh, really a heritage of our glory uh, and our bodies uh, by the Reverend Dagan Siepert, and finally another presentation by Dr. Adam Kuntz on Our Heritage of God's Gifts. These are all part of a free conference a free conference in the sense that it's an open theological dialogue, uh, free, that, that one is able to attend and present without officially declaring, uh, representing or declaring fellowship with others in attendance or any synodical group, uh, including even uh, our own church. Uh, but we are happy to host these uh, presenters, uh, and uh, it was edifying and educational to all those who were in attendance, and I hope the same is true for you. Uh, please enjoy uh, the lecture. All right. It is my distinct pleasure to introduce to you my friend and esteemed pastor, Dagan Siepert. He is the pastor in New Ipswich, which is in New Hampshire, and he's going to present for us today on the biblical topic of glorification. Pastor Siepert. Thank you. It's a joy uh, and an honor to be asked to speak with uh, you today, especially following Dr. Coons. He mentioned that the Missouri Synod, which I, I'm a pastor in the Missouri Synod, the Missouri Synod might have problems, but I can tell you Dr. Coons is definitely not one of them. Uh, it was a joy to, a joy to hear him speak, and I know you were all edify, edified by that and uh, Mr. Baker's speech as well. I feel like I need to give a little bit of a disclaimer because I don't know, if you're a cynic like me, when you come to events like this and somebody is asked to speak, you kind of want to know, like, what's your agenda? You know, there's sort of this thinly veiled idea that I want to get across to you, and I'd rather just come out and, and say that uh, first and foremost, where I'm coming from. Number one, I'm not an academic. I'm a pastor. So everything that I'm sharing with you today is from a pastor's heart, uh, real life, uh, although a short time in the ministry, experience with people who are act, uh, asking fundamental questions about the scriptures, about humanity humanity and what we believe, teach, and confess about God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So if you were thinking that you were going to get some sort of academic, lofty, esoteric, something or other essay, so now that you've all had your food and it's settling in, you can, you can fall asleep uh, during, uh, during this uh, speech today, I am happy to disappoint you uh, in that. But I will tell you that I know we've been here a while, so like if you need to get up and move and walk around, I will not be the least bit offended. A bomb could go off in the back row and I'll, I'll keep uh, uh, talking there. Uh, I will also say that we are going to spend a considerable amount of time in the scriptures. I realize that we do not have Bibles in uh, the uh, pews here, um, but if you need to use your phone or something like that and have it at the ready, uh, the two main places that I will be is Ephesians chapter 3 and Romans 5. 
5 through 8. So if you just want to kind of have that in the back of your mind, Ephesians chapter 3 and Romans 5 through 8, this after all is a conference in which we are celebrating the translation of the New Testament. So I think it is incumbent upon us to spend some time there. The state of the controversy for the pastor, I've been a pastor since 2019, uh, yeah, 2019, so right before COVID. Um, so in many sense, I, in, in one sense, I could say newly minted. I, I have a lot to learn and a lot to experience. But one thing that keeps coming up over and over with my people is, who are we? What does it mean to be human? I have air in my lungs, I have blood running through my veins, why am I here, and so forth. Uh, To put this another way, I will ask them, why are you a Christian? Why did God make you? And if you say, well, you know, I'm a Christian, I believe in the Bible, what is the Bible? We'll say, well, it's the Word of God. No, I mean even just the word Bible. Do you know where that word comes from? It's just from the Greek word biblos, which means book. Okay, we say the Bible is a book. What kind of a book? Well, God's book. You're still not, you still haven't said anything. The Bible, the Biblos, is the book of the Testaments or the book of the Covenants, and we have two. We divide them into the Old Testament and the New Testament, and even that is not entirely accurate because the Old Testament is full of covenants that God makes with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses and Israel, with David. So you see, we're already getting into a little bit deeper territory. Why am I a Christian? What is the Bible really all about? I have found, much to my chagrin, that it is very difficult for Christians to answer those two questions with any clarity and conviction. When I ask those questions, I often get this, uh, uh, this answer, which will really annoy me, so don't, don't ever say it to me. But if I ask you, why are you a Christian, and you say, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, I'm going to have a problem with that. It's true. You are a sinner in need of a savior. Is it true enough? Show of hands, how many of you are pleased with things happening in the culture right now? No one put your hand up, please. We'll have to have a conversation afterward. I feel like at every level, and, I, and I'm young, I'm 35 years old, uh, so some of you um, considerably older than that, but I feel like at every level there is just rot and decay in every single institution. Nobody is pleased with what is happening in the world. The question is, for Christians, how do we respond to that? And if your response is say, well, we are all sinners in need of a savior, you are not going to meet the concerns of a postmodern age. It's just not going to happen. And yet, if you are paying attention when you come to worship the divine service, the divine liturgy, your heart is going to be catechized. That is, it is going to be changed and conformed according to the word and will of God. Uh, one of the joys of being a pastor is not planning ahead. Um, I always thought that when I, when I was at the seminary, I'm like, I'm going to be one of these pastors who's going to have sermons planned out months in advance. My organist is going to, she's going to get all the hymns with it at least a month in advance and so forth. That doesn't happen. So I look, I, I look one Sunday at a time, prepare one Sunday at a time. I did not realize 
realize prior to um, planning to come to this conference that this past Sunday in my parish, we're on the one-year lectionary, was the 16th Sunday after Trinity, which the gospel reading is the raising of the widow's son at Nain, and then the epistle is from Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3 is one of the most beautiful passages in all of sacred scripture, and part of the reason for that is you get to see the heart of Paul as a minister of God. The heart of Paul. I'm going to read to you Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. And so I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, asking that according to the riches of his glory, he would grant you to be inwardly strengthened with power through his Spirit. I also pray that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, so that you may be rooted and grounded in love. May you thus, that is in this way, be strengthened to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height of Christ's love, which is beyond knowledge, and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus, for his people who find themselves in times of suffering and of temptation and agony and confusion about the things that are happening around them. But let's back up just for a moment. Ephesians chapter 1, which is my absolute favorite passage in all of sacred scripture. I want to read this to you. This is Paul's sort of opening doxology, Thanksgiving. Chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, so that we would be holy and without blemish before him in love. He also foreordained us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to his purpose and will. This is to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he showered upon us in all wisdom and insight. He has revealed to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he had determined beforehand in Christ. This came into effect when the times had been fulfilled to bring together all things under Christ, the things in the heavens and the things on the earth, yes, in him, in him, an inheritance, a heritage, we might say, was assigned to us, foreordained according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his will. And the end result of all of this is that we who had hoped in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, which is the good news of your salvation, and having believed in it, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. He is a pledge of our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now, there's a lot in there that Paul has said, but if you were listening carefully, there are several things that he repeats over and over. First, number one, every spiritual blessing that we would be chosen to be holy and blameless. 
Number two, that we have been predestined, there's the big boogeyman of Lutheran theology, but yes, we have been predestined for adoption as sons. Three, that we have redemption through the blood of Christ. Four, the mystery of God's will is in cosmic union of all things. I'll talk about that in a bit. And then five, predestined again to receive an inheritance. He goes on to say all of this is according to God's purpose and will, according to the riches of his grace, to the praise of the glory of his grace. So if I ask you, why are you a Christian? What is the Bible all about? You could simply turn to Ephesians chapter 1 and say, this is it. This is the reason for my hope because I have been predestined to glory, to receive adoption as a son or a daughter in Jesus Christ. Why do I exist? Why is there air in my lungs, blood running through my veins, my heart is beating? Because I was created for union with God. Now that language might bother some of you. Instead of saying union with God, we might say we were created with fellowship with God. Or an evangelical might say we were created for a personal relationship with God. That is what the scriptures are all about. Every promise that God makes, which the scriptures just call a covenant, is oriented to that end. We are celebrating the translation of the New Testament. If I asked you to turn to the New Testament, where would you turn? Probably most of you just go to Matthew, the page right before it says, the New Testament of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, if you're a little bit more theologically minded, you might turn to the crucifixion, say, well, there is the inauguration of the New Testament. I seriously doubt that, mo uh, that most of you would turn to the institution of the Holy Testament in Christ's body and blood. That is the New Testament, the giving of Christ's body and blood in the sacrament. Now, as Lutherans, we always emphasize, he says, this is my body, this is my blood. But again, I ask you, why? Why does it have to be the true body and blood of Jesus Christ? I find that even pastors cannot answer that question. All of these questions regarding humanity, your identity, the physicality of the human person are answered in the scriptures. We shouldn't be the least bit surprised, beloved, that if we do not understand these things as Christians who claim to believe, teach, and confess everything in the scriptures, then the unbeliever, the unregenerated, the world is not going to understand. I am not the least bit surprised that we have people who cannot tell us what a woman is. We can laugh at that, and we can say these poor people, how deluded they are, but have we as Christians actually spoken to that. You see what I'm getting at? We were created for union with God. We were sealed, as Paul says, with the Holy Spirit of promise as a pledge of our inheritance, our heritage, what we were created for, glory. The heritage of glory is clearly revealed in scriptures. And this is what brings St. Paul to his knees. Do you hear that? For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father, that you, according to the riches of his grace, would receive the spirit of adoption, 
that you would be God's children. And all of this so that you would re, uh, get ultimately to the point you would receive the fullness of God. He goes on to say, if you're looking in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, this is the first prayer that he makes. For this same reason, this is after everything he just said, for this same reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which is among you, and the love which you have toward all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation to bring you to full knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your heart, the Greek word there is nous, I'll talk about that in a second, having the eyes of your heart or your mind enlightened, may you experience the hope of his calling and know the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. May you also experience the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to his power and might which he accomplished in Christ. Listen to these words. According to the power and might which he accomplished in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and made him to sit at the right hand in the heavenly places. Yes, Christ now sits above all rule, authority, power, dominion, that's ranks of angels, and every name that can be named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. God put all things in subjection under his feet and granted him to be head over all things for the sake of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Paul is praying that the Father of glory may bring you to a full knowledge of him. How? Having the eyes of the heart or the noose enlightened. Now that word noose, if you have studied any uh, philosophy at all, uh, in the thought of Plato and Aristotle, noose, which we normally translate from the Greek as mind or intellect, they considered to be the highest seat of the rational human being, okay? Well, when the scriptures use the word noose and the early church fathers use the word noose, they would agree that the noose is the highest capacity of the human being, but it transcends the rational realm of things and enters into the realm of faith. In other words, the mind of the heart, the eyes of the soul, uh, we could uh, use that language, that is the center, the core of your being. Does that make sense? So mind or intellect is not just the rational thinking mind, but the believing heart. The very fact that our mind and our heart are often not in uh, uh, congruence with one another shows that you have a problem. You are physically and spiritually sick. We think about the heart as being the place of emotions. I feel this way. My heart tells me this, but my mind tells me that. That's a result of the fall. The heart and the mind are meant to act as one. We reference the Book of Common Prayer, one of the opening, uh, it is the opening collect of the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, it comes from the Serum Rite. Uh, Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. The heart as a place of thinking and the place of knowing, the noose. That's what Paul's getting at, and he's saying, I'm praying that this would be enlightened, awakened, vivified, so that you would come to a knowledge of God. 
It's what I like to call the catechism of the heart. We think of catechism as the book, right? Um, we, we learn Luther's small catechism, you memorize it. Even if you memorize it, that would be of no advantage to you whatsoever if it did not enter into the heart. The Word of God, beloved, is supposed to change you from the inside out. That's what Paul is praying for. This is what brings him to his knees. And he goes on to say that I want you to experience the hope of your calling, that you would know the riches of his grace, that we would experience, that is, know uh, experientially the greatness of his power, which raised Jesus Christ and glorified him in his human nature at the Father's right hand. He goes on to remind the Ephesians that they were dead in sin, sons of disobedience, by nature children of wrath, but been, have been made alive, vivified with Christ by grace. Chapter 2, verse 6, he says, <clears throat> God raised us up with him and granted us to sit with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I'm going to read that again. God raised us up with him and granted us to sit with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the overflowing treasure of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to say in verse, uh, 20, chapter 2, verse 22, that we are built, uh, being built up into a holy sanctuary in the Lord. In him, you too are built up into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Or as we might sing on the Feast of the Ascension of our Lord, he has raised our human nature on the clouds to God's right hand. There we sit in heavenly places, there with him in glory stand. Jesus reigns, adored by angels. Man with God is on the throne. By our mighty Lord's ascension, we by faith behold our own. For this reason, Paul bows his knees to the Father. I bow my knees that according to the riches of his glory, that we would be strengthened in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that we would be rooted and grounded in love, that we would know and comprehend the unknowable and incomprehensible. Did you hear that? That we would know and comprehend the unknowable and incomprehensible love of God with the result that all of this, that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. What could that possibly mean to be filled with the fullness of God? As we sang at my church this last Sunday during communion, I am flesh and must return to the dust whence I am taken. But by faith I now discern that from death I shall awaken with my Savior to abide in his glory at his side. Glorified I shall anew with this flesh then be enshrouded. In this body I shall view God, my Lord, with eyes unclouded. In this flesh I then shall see Jesus Christ eternally. Going back to the raising of the widow's son at Nain, from this past Sunday. St. Luke records that for us in St. Luke 11, uh, chapter 7, 11 through 17. But he sets before us the fundamental dichotomy of all things, 
life and death. St. Luke tells us that there is a great multitude with the Lord as Jesus is approaching the gate to the city. At the very same time, the widow and her dead son is departing the city, and a large crowd is with her. So in other words, you can imagine there are two great processions, as it were, one of life and one of death, and they are on a collision course at the gates. We have the Lord of glory and the Lord of life and those who are slaves to death. Death and life have contended in that combat stupendous, but it is the prince of life, as we sing on Easter, that reigns immortal. You see, this is where all of humanity inevitably finds him or herself. It doesn't matter whether you are a Christian or not. It doesn't matter whether you are white or black. It doesn't matter whether you are gay or straight or anything in between. At some point, you will be confronted with death. It's inevitable. We all know this. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. And yet it is uh, incredibly ironic to me that we, even as Christians, will do everything that is possible to preserve the self, to preserve life. I think it was, what, 2021, what year is it? 2022. Everything's a blur from 2020. Uh, but the Vatican was actually hosting a, uh, a conference, of getting health experts from around the world. And the ad that they used, now this is, this is coming from the Roman Catholic Church, the ad that they used was a, from the painting of Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel up above, it has uh, creation and God reaching out and touching Adam, if you've ever seen uh, that, that image before. Well, not only did they change the color of someone's skin, not that that ultimate really matters, but that's, that's not what the image is, but they added a glove on God's finger. Now think about the absurdity for that for a moment. We can say, well, what is well-meaning is that we need to be kind and loving and protect one another. We don't want people to die. But newsflash, God is not afraid of touching death. He is not afraid of coming into contact with Adam. It was the most disgusting display of the distortion of the Christian message that I probably have ever seen. That image is still in my mind, that even as Christians, we are so afraid of death, we will avoid it at all costs. If you've ever watched the show, The Unexplained, uh, with William Shatner, it's actually quite interesting. I binge-watched it a couple of weeks ago uh, on, on Netflix. But there's one episode where they are talking about the uploading of the mind into the cloud. Is there a way for human beings to live beyond uh, this temporal life? So once this body is laid into the ground or cremated, whatever, can we live forever? Even scientists who are not Christians said there is something that we cannot quite grasp. We almost have the technology to upload uh, our, our mind into a cloud, as it were, and yet there's this problem with consciousness and personality. Even if we could upload all that information and we have the technology, even, you know, the question, can AI actually be sentient? What is truly diabolical is because we, we have created something that can get so close, so close that we would actually be deceived into thinking that is a real person. 
and that my existence can continue on after this body is laid into the ground, uh, the, the, uh, the noose, if you will, can be uploaded to the cloud. Absolutely, absolutely absurd. Box Cantata from last Sunday. Why should you be so afraid, my spirit, when my last hour strikes? My body daily inclines itself towards earth, and there its resting place must be, whither so many thousands are carried. My weak heart indeed feels fear, care, pain. Where shall my body find rest? By whom shall my soul from the yoke of sin put on, uh, the yoke of sin put on it be freed and released? What is mine shall be dispersed, and whither shall my loved ones in their sorrow separated be driven? Yet retreat, you mad vain cares. My Jesus calls me, who should not go. Nothing that pleases me does the world possess. Appear to me, blessed, joyful morning, to stand before Jesus, transfigured and glorious. The only way for the human person to be transfigured and glorious is through the body of the resurrected Jesus. What is it that we celebrate at Easter or Christmas? We say, well, that if you're a sinner in need of a Savior, Jesus came to die to save you from your sins. Glory, hallelujah, amen, we can all go home. Or to ask that a different way, is it just that we have forgiveness of sins to be received by faith? Is that all that Jesus came to do? If that's the case, then we don't really need Easter Sunday. Or Jesus could have just risen in his spirit, manifested himself in the spirit. He didn't need to actually raise human nature from the dead. The entire economy of salvation, if you will, is oriented to this end. We, that is human nature, body and soul, have truly passed over from death to life in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is not that just we have sins forgiven as important as that is. It is truly the lifeblood of our Christian faith, but there is an ontological that is a substantial bodily victory of the human nature over death in the person of Jesus Christ. If this is not true, Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if this is not true, if Christ is not raised, then our faith is useless. It is entirely in vain. Indeed, we would be, the people in this life, the most to be pitied. To put that colloquially, it would be embarrassing what we celebrate Sunday after Sunday if Jesus did not raise up human nature from the grave on the third day. This helps us to explain. I wanted to read through 1 Corinthians 58. I don't have enough time. Very important passage. I'm going to circle back to it in a minute. But the resurrected Christ appears as the last or second Adam, if you will, in his resurrection in order to inaugurate the new creation. I need to read just one portion from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He did become the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since death came through one man, the resurrection of the dead also came through one man. 
As in Adam all die, in Christ all will be made alive, but each one in the proper order, Christ the firstfruits, then those who are Christ that is coming. When the end comes, he will deliver the kingdom to the God and Father, that is, when he will have abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is obvious that this does not include the one who subjected all things to him. When all things have been subjected to him, then the Son will also subject himself to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all and all in all. Jumping to verse 35, but someone will say, how are the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they return? You foolish one, literally, you moron. Even what you sow in the, uh, uh, even if what you sow is not made alive, unless it dies first, what you sow, you do not sow in the shape that it will be, but a bare grain, maybe of wheat or of some other kind of, uh, of some other kind. But God gives it a body, even as it pleased Him, and to each seed a body of its own. Not all flesh is alike. There is human nature, animal flesh, and also the nature of fish and birds. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly differs from that of the earthly. There is the glory of the sun, another the glory of the moon, another the glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. This is comparable to the resurrection of the dead. Something is sown in corruption, but raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is then raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, then raised in power. It is sown as a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body just as there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, referring to Christ, became a life-giving spirit. The second Adam, the last Adam, has become a life-giving giving spirit. This will help us, uh, help us to understand what I believe one of the most peculiar and perplexing moments in redemptive history that's recorded by the Holy Apostle and Evangelist St. John, and that is on the day of the resurrection, Mary does not recognize Jesus. Every time I read that, it is quite confusing. How is it possible that you would not recognize your teacher, your master, your Lord that you have spent so much time with over the past two, three years? No wonder why Thomas doubted not the resurrection from the dead, but the testimony regarding that resurrection. Not only did Mary not recognize Jesus, but then Thomas hears that this Jesus supposedly is resurrected, and he is walking through walls. That doesn't make any sense, right? St. John tells us that she mistakes Jesus for the gardener. Every time I read that, I chuckle. Does she think that this is Jesus trimming the hedges there in the garden on Sunday morning? Or is there something more that St. John wants us to see? Is it just a case of mistaken identity? Or is he pointing to the coming of new creation and Christ as the second Adam? It is the first day of the week. It is new creation. 
we are in a garden, Jesus is the second Adam, there would appear that there is something unrecognizable, this is the point, there is something unrecognizable about the resurrected body that hasn't yet been glorified. Jesus says, do not touch me, for I have not yet been glorified. And yet she didn't recognize him. It seems that our Lord in his resurrected state is in some sort of intermediary bodily state. This is, as theologians often call it, the recapitulation of all things, and it must come about through the incarnate Christ, born of the woman, as the new Eve. This is why St. Matthew begins his gospel, the genesis of Jesus Christ. If you went to St. Luke's genealogy at the end of chapter 3, he traces Jesus all the way back to Adam. He says, uh, the, in reference to Adam, as the son of Adam, son of God. This is just after Jesus' baptism, mind you, and then full of the Spirit, he is led into the wilderness in order to be tempted. Are you picking up what I'm putting down? As one hymn puts it, prepare, O Bethlehem, for Eden has been opened to all. Adorn yourself, O Ephrathah, for the tree of life blossoms forth from the virgin in the cave. Her womb is a spiritual paradise planted with the divine fruit. If we eat of it, we shall live forever and not die like Adam. Christ comes to restore the ancient beauty which he was made in the beginning. If it is that the comparison is being made with Christ as the second Adam, then we must be absolutely clear in our understanding of the first Adam who is made in the image and likeness of the second. I'm increasingly convinced, and this might be a bold statement, especially for some of the pastors in the room, I'm increasingly convinced that all of our theology hinges on our understanding of man created in the image and likeness of God. Going back to why are you a Christian, what is the Bible all about, if I asked you what is the image of God, would you be able to answer that? Newsflash, the scriptures tell you plainly, it is knowledge of God, righteousness, and holiness of the truth. Ephesians 4.24, Colossians 3.10. I have so pressed this into the hearts and minds of my congregation that I will actually call people out in the middle of a sermon. Can you answer it? And everybody's on the ready. Knowledge of God, righteousness, and the holiness of the truth, or what we sometimes just say, original righteousness. You see how we throw that idea of the image of God around in our culture today. We are all children of God. We are all created in the image of God. Well, Paul says that's not true because we are by nature sons of, disobedient, uh, of disobedience, children of wrath. So if you are not reborn of water and the Spirit, you are by nature a son of Satan. So we cannot say that, well, we are all God's children. Yes, we are all created by God. He has endowed us with his image, even though that image is distorted, it is lost in the fall in terms of original righteousness. People also want to say, especially when uh, in, in uh, issues over abortion and pro-life, we say life is precious, we are pro-life. What is that life? What is that image? What is a human person? The scriptures tell us that the image of God is knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness or the holiness of the truth. Our confessions affirm this in the Apology, Article 2. But what is righteousness? 
In the scriptures, righteousness consists not only in obeying the second table of the Ten Commandments, which are about good works and serving our fellow man, but also the first table, which teaches about fearing God, faith, and loving God. Therefore, original righteousness includes not only physical health. Now listen to that again. Therefore, original righteousness includes not only physical health in all ways, but also these gifts, a sure and certain knowledge of God, fear of God, confidence in God, and the desire and ability to give God these things. Scripture testifies to this when it says in Genesis 1.27 that man was made in the image and likeness of God. What else was the image and likeness other than that man was created with wisdom and righteousness so that he could apprehend God and reflect God. Mankind was given the gift of knowing God, fearing God, and being confident in God. The epitome of the formula of Concord, Article 1. Man was originally created by God pure and holy and without sin. And again, God created the body and soul of Adam and Eve before the fall. And again, furthermore, God's Son has received this human nature and again, Christ redeemed human nature as his work, sanctifies it, raises it from the dead, and gloriously adorns it as his work. Did you hear this? That furthermore, God's Son has received this human nature that is body and soul. You are psychosomatic beings. That is, you are body and soul. That is what the human person is. Death is the tearing asunder of what God has put together, the departing of the soul from the body. So our confessions say Christ has redeemed human nature, that is, body and soul, works, sanctifies it, raises it from the dead, and gloriously adorns it as his work. And in speaking of the restoration of this human nature with so deep a corruption as we sing in Lods today, it says, we affirm that no one but God alone can separate human nature and this corruption of human nature from each other. This will fully come to pass through death in the blessed resurrection. At that time, our nature, which we now bear, will rise and live eternally without original sin and be separated and divided from it. As it is written in Job chapter 19, verse 26 to 27, this will be the opening verse at my funeral, so get ready for it. After my flesh has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold. If original righteousness, the image of God, is knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, then it cannot be a static one. Genesis chapter 2 and 3 makes this clear. Though Adam had original righteousness, there was still something yet to be attained. Sometimes we say that he was created in this probationary state. If he had obeyed God, then he would have uh, gone up into heaven, uh, whatever that might mean. If you look at the text, we read he was created first very good, not perfect. We often say, and quite sloppily, well, everything was perfect in the Garden of Eden. It wasn't. That doesn't mean that there was something broken about it or that uh, God was holding out in some way, as we'll talk about in a second, but there was something to be gained in being in that state. 
if I have knowledge of God, righteousness, and the holiness of the truth, that's not something that I just contain within myself. That's going to manifest itself in outward action. So he was created very good, and note, in the midst of creation, not apart from it, created very good, not perfect. He was created outside the garden, not in it. Again, we teach our, our children all the time that, well, Adam and Eve were created in the Garden of Eden. No, they were not. The garden is something separate. So he was created very good. He was created outside the garden, then placed within it. The garden is actually planted after the creation of Adam, not before. He has given the covenant of creation or, or of life, if you will, to be fruitful, to multiply, exercise dominion, and to offer a logical latria, as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12, a priestly divine service in the holy of holies that is the Garden of Eden before the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Therefore, even though there seems to be a lack of consensus on whether image and likeness are synonymous or separate, sometimes we'll say, well, image and likeness just mean the same thing. Some theologians will say that they're different. We could say that the image Adam was endowed with had potential to grow into that likeness of God through knowledge of him and putting righteousness and holiness of truth to use in relationship to God and to one another. Does that make sense? There is something to grow in life with God, fellowship with God, a personal relationship with God, union with God. It cannot be static. It is constantly moving because it is life itself. But he also had the potential to forfeit this blessed life through free will. True love is entirely free from constraint. I get this question all the time from people, and I, I think they think that it's going to be one of those, let's stump the pastor. So if God knew that Adam and Eve were going to fall into sin, why did he create them in the first place? I turn that around. If you wanted to make someone love you, would you want to give them love potion number nine or cast some sort of magical spell and then all of a sudden they love you? At the back of your mind, you would know that's not actually true love. I made this person love me. God created Adam and Eve to love him, not by force, but by grace, okay? And if this is the case, then the craftiness of the serpent is all the more diabolical. What are the two lies that he tells Adam and Eve? You will not surely die. You will be like God. Those two lies, beloved, are what drives all of human existence. We will not surely die. We will be like God, whoever she or he may be. It is a denial of the very nature of God's covenantal relationship with Adam, who is already like God because he is created in his image and after his likeness, and indeed will not surely die as he is granted to partake of the tree of life. So Satan didn't need to conjure up something new. He simply took what God said and distorted it. You're not going to die. You will be like God. Adam should have said, we already are, and we will live forever with our God. But by his own volition, separated from the path of the fullness of humanity, if you will, Adam and his descendants are subjected to death without the possibility of life apart from the seed of the woman. Why does this matter? 
God doesn't just wave a magic wand and say, okay, your sins are going to be forgiven. He promises that the seed of the woman, a human person, is going to crush the serpent's head. Why? Because man's problem is not only spiritual, not just your soul, but the body as well. The promised redemption must be for the entire person. Again, our confessions, the solid declaration, Article 1. Furthermore, human nature, which is perverted and corrupted by original sin, must and can be healed only by the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, Titus chapter 3, verse 5. However, this healing is only begun in this life. It will not be perfect until the life to come. This then becomes the focus of St. Paul in Romans chapter 5 through 8. As Christ, the second Adam, comes to deliver humanity from the body of death. A tale of two Adams, if you will. Remember that St. Paul is writing to the Romans. He's setting forth the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of salvation for all of those who believe. He says that the wrath of God, in chapter 1, the wrath of God is revealed against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, we've said the image of God is knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Now St. Paul is telling us that the wrath of God is revealed against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of those who suppress the truth. In other words, we could say that the wrath of God is revealed against fallen humanity, which has so corrupted the image of God that they become darkened in the heart to the power and divinity of God that is perceived in creation. This is Paul's point in Romans chapter 1. We all turn to Romans chapter 1 and say, well, this is the wrath of God against homosexuality. It is much broader than that. The total corruption of the human person has now distorted even creation around itself that we can no longer see and perceive the power and divinity of God. Such is the depth of our uh, degradation. And so after making clear that all humanity is under the curse, he proclaims the righteousness of God in chapter 3, verse 21. Very familiar passage, but I'm going to read it to you just to call it to mind. Chapter 3, beginning at verse 21. But now a righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law, and the law and the prophets bear witness to it. It is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all those who believe. There is no distinction because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All are being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God purposed him to be an atoning sacrifice through the shedding of his blood and to be received through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness by passing over prior sins according to God's patience. This was also to demonstrate his righteousness at this present time so that God might himself be just and the justifier of whoever has faith in Jesus Christ. And I often feel like Lutherans will stop right there. There's the gospel, that we have been justified by faith apart from the works of the law. It is true. Is it true enough? 
In chapter 4, Abraham is set forth as the example of the righteousness of faith in the covenant promises of God apart from works. And yet there is a crucial transition made at the end of chapter 4, verse 24. I'm going to go back to verse 23. Therefore, it was also faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. Now it was not written that it was accounted to him for his sake alone. It was written also for our sake. And faith will be credited, imputed, accounted, reckoned to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered for our sins and was raised for our justification. Do you see what Paul just did? Our faith is in the resurrected Jesus. What's the implication? That the declaration of the Father that sins are forgiven upon those, all those who believe has ontological implications. That is, for the body as well as the soul. He then goes on, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Being therefore justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Glory, hallelujah, amen. But he goes on to say, through whom... We also have our access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now Paul is moving forward. If I have peace with God, if I have been reconciled through faith, what next? Because we still have a problem, and that problem is death. He says, for a while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. How much more will we be saved by his life? Are you grasping what Paul is getting at? Where there is forgiveness of sins, as the catechism teaches, there is also life and salvation. And so he begins to speak of salvation, that is Paul, as something beyond justification. Why? Because he says death reigns in the old Adam but life in the new. There's the crux of the problem, or I'm from the South, we say the crux of the biscuit. If salvation and justification is simply forgiveness of sins so that the soul goes to heaven, and I don't know what you think sometimes, that you're going to sit on a cloud and pluck a harp for all eternity, it sounds kind of boring to me. If that is all it is, then what do we do about the body? What do we do about death? Preacher to the Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 10. How am I on time? Because I can just keep rolling. Okay. Hebrews chapter 10. Indeed, uh, cha uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. Indeed, it was fitting for God, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the author of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one. For this reason, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Jumping down, verse 14. Since the children have shared in the same flesh and blood, he likewise shared the same human nature, so that through death he might bring to nothing the one who had the power of death, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 12, therefore, 
even as sin entered into the world through one man and death through sin, death passed to everyone because of which all sinned, until the law was revealed, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those whose sins were not like Adam's disobedience. And Adam was a type of him who was to come. However, the free gift is not like the sin. For if by the sin of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. The gift is not comparable to what happened through the one who sinned. Certainly, the judgment came by one man to result in condemnation, but the free gift came as the outcome of many trespasses to bring about justification. For if by the sin of the one, death reigned through that one, so much war will those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. And so as though one's, uh, through one sin all men were condemned, likewise through one act of righteousness all men were justified to life. Indeed, just as through one man's disobedience many were made sinners, likewise through the obedience of the one many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law came in so that sin might be multiplied, but where sin did multiply, grace multiplied even more. This way, just as sin ruled in death, grace was to rule through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see what Paul is saying? The body is redeemed in the resurrected Christ. Now what? It will be made righteous that is sanctified. And this sanctification, as Paul turns to in Romans chapter 6, begins with the uh, sacramental or mystical union of the believer in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Haneke writes, the mystical union of believers with God consists in that the triune God through the Holy Spirit essentially is graciously present in believers through which those who united with God not only blessedly rejoice and are filled with comfort and peace, but are also made constantly more certain in grace, strengthened in sanctification, and preserved for eternal life. This is why Paul goes on to say, now in Romans chapter 6, we were baptized into death that we may walk in newness of life. Whoever has died, he says, has literally been in the Greek justified from sin. All who, have been baptized and have been, uh, all who have been baptized in the death of Jesus Christ, just as Christ is raised by the glory of the Father, we too should walk in newness of life. Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse, uh, verse 8. <clears throat> this font is really small, I'm sorry. <clears throat> For the death that he died, he, oh no, sorry, uh, whoever has died has been freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, that is in baptism, we believe that we will also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin one time, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Thus consider yourselves to be dead as regards to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so do not let sin rule in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. 
Also do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. We are, as he goes on to say, uh, be obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which we have been committed. The Catechism teaches us as regards to baptism, what does this uh, baptism indicate? It indicates that the old Adam in us should by daily contrition and repentance be drowned and die with all sins and evil desires and that a new man should daily emerge and arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. How are we obedient to the heart, from the heart to that form of teaching by becoming slaves to righteousness for sanctification. Paul writes at the end of chapter 6, What fruit did you obtain at that time by those things which now shame you? The end result of those things is death. But now being made free from sin, that is now being justified and having become enslaved to God, you have your fruit of sanctification and the result of that, eternal life. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are created, we are redeemed to be a holy people, to do good works. Our confessions put it this way. This is a lengthy quote, but it's very important. Here again, the adversaries, that is the Roman church, will cry out that there is no need of good works if they do not merit eternal life. These calumnies we have refuted above. Of course it is necessary to do good works. We say that eternal life has been promised to the justified, but those who walk according to the flesh retain neither faith nor righteousness. We are, for this very end, justified, that being righteous, we may begin to do good works and to obey God's law. We are regenerated and receive the Holy Ghost for the very end that the new life may produce new works, new dispositions, the fear and love of God, hatred of concupiscence, that is the inclination to sin. This faith of which we speak arises in repentance and ought to be established and grow in the midst of good works, temptations, and dangers, so that we may continually be the more firmly persuaded that God, for Christ's sake, cares for us, forgives us, hears us. This is not learned without many and great struggles. How often is conscience aroused? How often does it incite even to despair when it brings to view sins, either old or new, or the impurity of our nature? This handwriting is not blotted out without a great struggle in which experience testifies what a difficult matter faith is. And while we are cheered in the midst of the terrors and receive consolation, other spiritual movements at the same time grow. The knowledge of God, fear of God, hope, love of God, and we are regenerated, as St. Paul says in Colossians 3.10 and 2 Corinthians 3.18, in the knowledge of God, here it is, listen to these words, and beholding the glory of God are changed, literally transfigured, into the same image. We receive the true knowledge of God so that we truly fear him, truly trust that we are cared for and that we are heard by him. This regeneration, as it were, the beginning of eternal life. If Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. 
And in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 2 to 3, we are clothed upon, if so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. From these statements, the candid reader can judge that we certainly require good works, since we teach that this faith arises in repentance, and in repentance ought continually to increase. And in these matters, we place Christian in spiritual perfection, if repentance and faith grow together in repentance. This can be better understood by the godly than those things which are taught by the adversaries concerning contemplation or perfection. Just as, however, justification pertains to faith, so also life eternal pertains to faith. And Peter says in 1 Peter 1 verse 9, receiving the end or fruit of your faith, the salvation of your souls. For the adversaries confess that the justified are children of God and co-heirs of Christ. Afterwards, works, because on account of faith they please God, merit other bodily and spiritual rewards, for there will be distinctions in the glory of the saints. In other words, the confessions are saying that sanctification, the process of being made holy, is the renewal of the image of God as we are all changed, literally as the scriptures say, transfigured from glory to glory. Paul says, Colossians 3, if we are planted in his death and his, excuse me, Romans chapter 6, if we are planted in his death and his resurrection, then we are to bear fruit unto eternal life. Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, if you were raised together with Christ, Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind, the noose, the eyes of the heart, the mind of the soul, on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. And yet, did you notice the confessions? What a difficult matter faith is. This is why Paul bows his knees to the Father, that you would be strengthened in the inner man. St. Paul says to set your noose, that is the mind of the heart, the eyes of the soul on things above. The mind of the heart, the eyes of the soul must be illumined to see the resurrected Christ in his glory. If we are going to walk in his ways, that is the path of righteousness which he causes us to walk for his own name's sake. St. Paul turns to the struggle of the inner man in Romans chapter 7. I don't have time uh, to go all the way through there, but he says the noose and the flesh are at war with one another, and I can serve serve God with my noose, and yet I'm serving the flesh through sin. And yet St. Paul, contrary to Lutheran belief, oftentimes, is not being defeatist. He says, walk according to the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you, literally, uh, literally energizing you to will and do for the Father's good pleasure. And yet, knowing all of this, at the end of Romans chapter 7, Paul will ask, First he says, verse 7.24, Miserable one that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? 
I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so with the noose, I serve God's law, but with the flesh, I serve the law of sin. Therefore, chapter 8, verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those in Christ Jesus, Paul says, though the noose and the flesh, if we want to say the heart, uh, the inner recesses of the soul, are at war with the flesh, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, then the same Spirit that raised Jesus to life on the day of resurrection will give life to your mortal bodies. He says, chapter 8, verse 10, we're approaching the summit here. If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised up Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Jumping down to verse 14, and as many as are led by the spirit of God are children of of God. You did not receive the spirit of bondage to live again in fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption through which we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Here, beloved, we are approaching the summit, if you will, true paradise, high theology, and getting close to the end of this, uh, this speech here. The Spirit testifies to us that we are sons of God, heirs and joint heirs, with the result that we would be glorified body and soul with Christ. This is the first time that St. Paul uses that word glorified. He speaks so clearly. This is the end goal of our salvation, glorification. As the Catechism says in its explanation of the second article, that Christ has done all of these things, that I might be his own and live under him in his kingdom and everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness, just as he lives and reigns to all eternity. This poses the question, what does it mean to be glorified, to contain, as Paul says, the fullness of God? It is to be filled, as Paul says, with he who is, in, who is all in all, to be apocalypsed, literally, with Christ in glory. It is to be strengthened with the might of his glory, to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints and light. The mystery is Christ in you, the hope of your glory, Colossians 1.27. In him, St. Paul says, all the fullness of divinity dwells bodily, and in him you are made full. Our Lord says that the righteous will shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Again, Paul says, with unveiled face, we are beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. We are all being transfigured into the same image from glory to glory, and this is from the Lord, the Spirit. Again, he writes, seeing that God commanded the light to shine out of darkness, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
Again, St. Paul writes, As for us, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we are expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transfigure the body of our humiliation to be conformed to the body of his glory, according to the energy by which he is able to subject all things to himself. Moreover, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, we groan within ourselves, awaiting for our redemption, to wit, the salvation of the body. Chapter 8, verse 19. As it is, the creation waits with eager expectation for the revelation of God's children. Indeed, creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that creation will also be delivered from the bondage of decay into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the totality of creation groans and labors in pain until now. Moreover, so do we who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan within ourselves, awaiting the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. We were saved in, in hope. That is the hope of the redemption of the body. That's what saved us, faith in the resurrected uh, Christ. But hope that is seen is not hope. Indeed, why does one still hope for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. He goes on to say, we know that all things work together for good, those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. One of the most misquoted verses in the Bible, by the way. Whoever God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that his son might be the firstborn among many brethren. Whoever God predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he has glorified. What is glorification? It is the fullness of the renewal of the image of God, knowledge, righteousness, and holiness within you to such a state of perfection that we become immortal, incorruptible, and we share in the divine life of the Trinity. Does that sound a little new agey to you? To have the fullness of God? what we might say, enthusiasm, God within. Second Peter, chapter 1, verse 3. Now the systematician will tell you this is antilogomena, so we cannot draw our theology from here, but I'm going to read it. Anyway, I think Paul has already made his point clear. Second Peter drives it home for us. I'm nearing the end here. Second Peter, chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted us all that we need to live in godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Through these things, he has granted to us his precious and tremendous promises so that having escaped from the corruption that is in the world by lust, here it is, you may become partakers of the divine nature. I'm going to say that again. Through the promises of God, by his divine power, so that you would have godliness through the knowledge of him who has called you to glory, you become a participant of the divine nature of the Trinity. Let that sink in. 
we commune, literally, with the divine nature of God by grace. Formula of Concord, the Apostle Peter testifies in clear words that we also, in whom Christ dwells only by grace, on account of that great mystery, are partakers of the divine nature in Christ. In other words, we participate in the attributes of God without a confusion of essence. That means we do not actually become God. We do not cease to be human. We become the fullness of what it actually means to be human. The example or the illustration that's often given, and I think that it's helpful, is if I go out into the sunlight, I can appreciate and share in the life of the sun, as it were. I can experience heat. I can experience light. And these things will actually affect me bodily. If I'm not prepared to go into the sun, what happens? I burn. If I'm prepared, I got my sunblock on, SPF 50, because I still want to kind of get a tan. I've got my sunglasses on, but I can go out into the sun and I can enjoy light and heat, all of these things. That's what we're talking about here. We can share by grace what is God's by nature because we are created in his image. This is the transfiguration of the human nature into the glory of God. Where is this so beautifully seen but the transfiguration of Jesus at Mount Tabor? This we get in the season of Epiphany in, in uh, the Missouri Synod. I'm not sure how it falls in your lectionary. But we have the baptism of Jesus, the Father saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And then the season of Epiphany ends with the Feast of the Transfiguration. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. But if you remember at the Transfiguration, what does St. Peter want to do? Not only build a tabernacle for Jesus, which would be obvious enough as the divine light is radiating from him, but he also wants a tabernacle for Moses and Elijah because they have the divine life of God within them. This glimpse of the fullness of God radiating from them. St. John says in his first epistle, what kind of love is this? That we would be called sons of God and yet what we shall be has not yet been revealed but when he that is Christ is revealed, we know that we shall be like him, for we shall see him just as he is. Our Lord says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And remember, St. Paul, but someone will say, with what kind of a body, you moron, the glory of the heavenly differs from that of the earthly. There is a natural body just as there is a spiritual body. We will all be transfigured in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. St. Peter goes on to say in his second epistle, rooting this uh, transfiguration of Jesus, uh, excuse me, 2 uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 12, therefore I will not be negligent to remind you of these things. Pastors, listen up. I will not be negligent to remind you of these things, although you already know them and are established in the truth which you now have. I think it right, as long as I'm in this tent, this tabernacle, to stir you up by reminding you of these things. I know that I shall lay aside my tent very quickly, even as our dear Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And so I will make every effort to ensure that you will always be able to remember these things, even after my departure. Certainly we did not depend on cleverly invented fables when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty, 
For he received from God the Father honor and glory when the voice came to him from the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, that is, sonship, in which you were all predestined for, beloved. We heard this voice come out of heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Therefore, we have the word of prophecy made even more certain, and you should pay attention to it as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Know this, first of all, that no interpretation of scriptural prophecy happens in something private, because no prophecy ever came by human will. Holy men of God spoke, being moved by the Spirit. The word of prophecy, the scriptures, our great heritage is made certain and is a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in our hearts. If the fullness of salvation is the adoption as sons to be glorified in Christ, here's the obvious question, and I will end with this. How do we attain it? How does one achieve a glorified state? Again, we return to the day of the resurrection of our Lord at the setting of the sun. Remember in St. Luke's account, I believe it's the gospel reading this Sunday, the disciples' eyes were kept from recognizing Jesus, just like Mary. Christ says it was necessary first to suffer, then enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And St. Uh, Luke goes on to say, it wasn't until their sharing in the Eucharist, the breaking of the bread, that their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Their hearts burned within them. And then they shared in the sacred meal of Christ's body and blood. Remember our Lord says, and this is why it matters, that it is truly his flesh and blood on the altar. If I, whoever eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood, I abide in him and he in me, and I will raise him up on the last day. St. Luke goes on to say, he opened their noose so that they might understand the scriptures. There is the path to glorification, to be transfigured into the image of God in knowledge and righteousness and holiness. Thy strong word, as we sing, bespeaks us righteous, bright with thine own holiness. Glorious now, we press toward glory, and our lives, our hopes confess. It is the experience of the word of God through prayer, meditation, and as Luther says, the spiritual struggle, what a great struggle faith is, in which we are made true theologians to see and to know God. Remember the prayer of St. Paul, that you, according to the riches of God, would experience these things in order to be filled with all the fullness of God. What are the implications? Real quick. The gospel, that seems trite, but our message as Christians hinges on what we believe regarding the end result of our salvation. If you are just a sinner in need of a savior just so that the soul can go to heaven and sit on a cloud and pluck for a harp, I can tell you right now the world is not the least bit interested. But if you believe that God has created you, body and soul, 
in his image, to know him, and to share in his nature by grace, we already have something to set our hearts upon. And think about all the people right now who are confused, even with their own sexual identity, their gender, things of that nature. We have something to speak to. If it's only to the soul, then it doesn't matter what we do in the body, does it? I think especially for pastors, we need to be careful that we do not fall into a functional Gnosticism, that is, the soul good, the body bad, soul goes to heaven, the body goes into the ground, and that's it, and yet somehow we're going to celebrate Easter and the resurrection of the dead. Secondly, I think many Christians suffer from a fragmented spirituality. And what do I mean by that? We know that we should read our Bibles. We know that we should go to church. We know that we should confess our sins. We know that we should live uh, our, li- our vocation, whatever that is for you. We know that we should have uh, devotional reading and material and times for prayer. But do we see that in a holistic sense? Why do I do all of these things? Most importantly, why do I participate in the divine services? Because through the worship, the liturgy of the church, the hearing of the word of God, the singing of the hymns, that is how God is renewing his image within you. It is here that the heart is catechized and you are being transfigured from glory to glory. And yes, we don't see what that will be like now, but when Christ returns, we will appear with him in glory. Thank you. Are there questions? If you have questions, you can come back here uh, and uh, use this mic. Uh, I'll actually start uh, by asking a question, and, and thank you very much for your um, your 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 paper, your essay. Uh, there's a, some really great things to think about on the image of God. Uh, now, what you're talking about is is really um, with with the knowledge, um, the, the 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 righteousness and and holiness. It's really the uh, the image of God in the in the in the narrow sense or the strict sense. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and yet, there's this, this larger sense too, where where even in the beginning of creation, when when, when Adam is created, he's created, but, he, but something is not, not perfect, not, not good. Uh, that is until God creates Eve. And then, and then it's, it's when they're both together that God says that he created them, them, male and female, and, and they're in the, the image of God, so together. Uh, so there's this, this complementary um, relationship of, of husband and wife, man and, and, and woman, as the image of God together, uh, reflecting um, the, the nature of the Trinity uh, then, too. Um, and yet, that's not something that, that's really lost after the fall. You know, what we sang um, in um, uh, the hymn by Adam's Fall, it's all forlorn, that's quoted in our, our confessions, uh, that's, that's man's nature and his thinking that, that's, that's lost. And, and that's what we usually talk about in the image of God being lost. But yet, we, we do retain this, well, we don't stop being male and female. Right. Um, and, and that, I, I wonder if you could speak to that, uh, especially with regards to where we are today with um, not uh, the, well, we don't think about the transfiguration, 
we're thinking about what transhumanism and, and all of this sort of thing. So, right. I'm glad that you brought that up because I actually had a section in here on that night passed by it uh, uh, for, for time's sake. But yeah, I, I think too when we, we speak of the image of God being lost, um, and we do use that language, we need to be careful uh, what we mean by that. It has certainly been, uh, been corrupted and it needs to be uh, restored. But if the image of God were completely lost, you would cease to be human because you are created with that, you, you, are, you are endowed with that. And as it pertains to male and female, I, I think that's um, absolutely important, Pastor. Um, I think it's more of a conversation we don't have enough time for because I, I, I went too long uh, there. But those are the kind of, the point of this, those are the kind of conversations we need to be having, uh, and unless we're rooted in, uh, in that image uh, of God, uh, an understanding of that, and the transfigure to be the fullness of what it actually means to be human, then we can, we can come to a proper understanding of, of male and female sexuality, all these things. Right. Well, and that's actually, if I, if I wanted to, to keep rambling, I could, because even then when we say, uh, you know, that we have a soul, what do we mean by that? Is it just a life force? No, it has been endowed with certain uh, attributes, certain faculties that all, uh, that all ties, ties into this. And I think that if we are going to bear uh, witness to the gospel, the church, I don't care what synod you're in, this is where the conversation needs to be happening. I always joke that I was born... Uh, on a soapbox and with an axe to grind. Uh, so, but that's, that's the one uh, where I am now. So thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm going to give you five minutes. Uh, we will begin at uh, 3.45. So five minutes, and then we'll uh, have uh, Dr. Kuntz come and give his presentation.